This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Diane Winston. She holds the night chair in media and religion at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Southern California. I spoke with her on April 16, 2009, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of NPR West in Los Angeles, California. This interview is included in our program, TV and Parables of Our Time. Download the MP3 of The Produced Show at speakingoffaith.org. Do I, I don't sound like I'm on both channels? Oh, yes, Chris is on both channels. Right, okay. You're on one okay. channel. Yeah, okay. it is. That, that's the way it should be designed. Okay. Um, is that level good for you, Minnesota? Yes, it's perfect now. Thank you. Okay, and I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Um, do you need me to run a backup? No, we're fine. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Okay, well, let's have some fun. <laughs> are, you, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, I'm... <laughs> Definitely fun, yes. Okay. I, I want to say before we start that I don't think we should uh, talk about watching 24 together since it has got, since it deteriorated so terribly in the last few seasons. You're not still watching have you, it, are you? This is a good season. Is it? It's really good. I tried, I watched the very, the very first episode with the terrible, tragic stories of boys in Africa and I couldn't stand it and I never watched again. Um, I think it that w- that was a hard one to watch. Mm-hmm. I think it's gotten better, and it's really tried to ha- deal with those questions of is Jack justified doing what he does? Hmm. Okay, well maybe. I but can we don't it. have to. We don't have to talk about it. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So I want to start. Um, I actually start here with everyone. It's a little bit harder to draw the line, maybe, um, to this subject. But um, tell me a little bit about the religious or spiritual background of your life, of your childhood? I grew up in a very secular Jewish home in Manhattan. And even though the world I lived in was very Jewishly inflected, which means everybody around me was Jewish, um, there were many... Many of my friends' parents were Holocaust survivors. Mm. Um, my own family wasn't particularly religious. We had Christmas trees. We had Easter egg hunts. Um, so I grew up knowing I was Jewish, but there wasn't much content to that beyond celebrating Passover or going to Sunday school. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Sorry, was there more you wanted to say? No. Okay. Is that enough? Yeah, that's enough. And then, you know, and then the the, the kind of crook, the parallel question I would ask, given what we want to talk about, is uh, you make some interesting observations in in your um, in the book, um, and I think in the blog, the writing you do on the blog, which I really love, um, about how I think this is from the book. You, you talk about how. Um, at one time, not that long ago, um, just because of the nature of television, a few programs would could dominate the cultural narrative, or one program mm-hmm. at a time. And so I just went, and I was kind of trying to think about this for myself as I was imagining asking you the question. But what, 
if you think about your the the television upbringing of your childhood, like what what were you watching, or what seemed um, what seems like was formative television at that in growing up? <laughs> Isn't that a funny question now? Well, it's funny insofar as our choices were so restricted, <laughs> you know, especially given what our kids can watch today. Yeah. Um, I think when I was really young, it was the Mickey Mouse Club. Hmm. And um, the Mouseketeers gave me a really good sense of, of virtues and of um, right conduct, if you will. Hmm. Um, and I could identify with all of them. Though I, I never liked Annette very much. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, when I was older, you know, Krista, I don't know if I had any programs that I loved growing up. Did you? Well, you know what, what I think of immediately... Are programs like Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. And then if I try to think about the messages <laughs> those shows were sending, right? <laughs> and they, I mean, they were communicating something about um, the world we were inhabiting or trying to inhabit, the roles of women, for example. Right. I mean, my mother right. stayed home just like Samantha did, but she wasn't a witch. <laughs> but somehow her choice to be a wit to, to, to be to be married to a mortal was to embrace all that, right? So it's kind of fascinating if you start th- taking it seriously, right? Right, because <sighs> all those shows sort of gave us an idea of women uh-huh. not being very empowered to right. use today's words, but they were always very crafty. Yes, I mean w- whether or not they were witches, they still worked a certain magic to get what they wanted. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So, yes, you wonder what kind of messages you grew up with. Mm-hmm. I think of the absolutely strong people as cowboys and spies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were always men. Yeah, absolutely. And the first strong woman I could think of is Diana Rigg in The Avengers. Do you remember that show? Mm-hmm. She was a spy too, right, or something like that—a detective. Yeah, she was. She was a spy. Uh-huh. But um, you know, it's interesting because there are no programs, as far as I can remember, that I felt as committed to as I do to programs today. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just <clears throat> had a richer life as a child. <laughs> well, but, but, but well, all right. No, but I was thinking. Um, that I might save this to, I mean, this is something I wanted to talk to you about, and I thought we might get to it, but, I mean, let's just lay it out there now. There's been plenty of people writing recently about a kind of renaissance that's happening in television. I mean, and I, I, I attribute, and I think other people do too, some of it to um, HBO, to these, to these cable networks creating a very high level of artistry in shows like Six Feet Under, um, you know, acting, writing... Um, and that somehow that's raised the bar for for everyone else. I I think that's really true. Um, I was thinking about it as I drove over here today that I would say we're in a golden age of television. Yeah. And it's partly a result of 
the media breakthroughs because of digitization. We have so many options, and more stations can do niche programming. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to appeal to the lowest common denominator. You can, you know, do a program that gets two million people, and it can be like Damages or right. Battlestar. Yeah. But also, HBO did raise the bar, and um, I think it also has to do with the times we live in. I think we live in very difficult times, and, you know, 2001 crystallized that for a lot of people. And I think hard times brings out our need for stories, mm. and uh, writers respond to that. And we tend to think of television as sort of, you know, the vast wasteland, but I th many people working in it are smart folks who share our concerns and see storytelling as a way to address some of the questions we all have. That is, that's a really interesting thought. Um, you know, having spent some time in Behind the Iron Curtain, one of the things that, that people talk about and can get nostalgic about now is the poetry, right? The writers, the value that was given to art. And you certainly can't, you can't say, you can't say that in the same way about this culture, but to think about... Um, television getting so much richer and more serious. I mean, that is the place we look when we look for storytelling in this culture, isn't it? As much as anything well, else. Yeah. Well, television is the most pervasive medium. 99% um, of American households have a television. Uh -huh. um, and it's a popular medium besides. I mean, unfortunately, people may not read a book when they come home, but mm -hmm. they may turn on the TV set. Mm hmm and, you know, you may not want to spend here in L.A. $14 to go to a movie, but you don't really think about television as costing anything unless it's time to pay your cable bill. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that it's sort of the default medium for many of us. I mean, the Internet's going to overcome it any day. But right. right now, TV is the medium we most frequently turn to, whether for news or for entertainment. And... um and interestingly, as I've been teaching this class on religion and TV, yeah. a lot of TV writers say, we don't want to work in film anymore. We want to work in television because that's where we can really tell our stories. That's really interesting. And so, and, and, and it does seem to be, to be it's, it's about more than the advance in technology. I mean, if you look at, let's say, even the difference between um, versions of the same shows, like the original Star Trek and Star Trek Next Generation. Well, that looks outdated now, but the old Battlestar Galactica and the new Battlestar Galactica, or those programs you and I were talking about. I mean, from my childhood, I Dream of Jeannie or Bewitched, um, uh, compared to, uh, I don't know, you can, anything, Lost. Um, um, just the, again, kind of the, the, the care in the writing, the, this, the seriousness of it, right? Even when it's very entertaining, the seriousness of it. Well, wouldn't you compare Bewitched to Buffy? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, women with supernatural powers. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But whereas Samantha was kind of just redirecting her household, Buffy was out saving the world. Right. And I think it speaks to a different world and a different understanding of what women can do. I don't, does the world just feel more complex than it did 30, 40 years ago? I mean, mm -hmm. I suppose it always feels like that when you're in the middle of it, but mm -hmm. it seems as if we could point to real reasons why 
We do need Buffy and not Samantha today. (laughs) (laughs) So this this project you've been working on, I mean, I think this is a project you work on all the time in your in your teaching and and in your in your in writing your blog. But um, this this book you're you're uh, you've edited. you know, you point out that for much of history, um, and I, I think generally speaking, I, uh, we, we t- when we talk about studying television or analyzing television, um, we tend to focus on negative effects. And mm-hmm. that there was certainly a real emphasis on that just a few years ago. But you suggest that television functions as a space for constituting individual and communal religious identity. And I just and I wonder like when did you when? start <laughs> that's in your book. <laughs> you don't remember writing that? I do, but you're saying it like you think it's like not true. No, no. I I think it's big. I think it's real. I mean, t- you know, compared to uh, compared to the way we were talking a few years ago and you'll still see articles about, you know, how, how is this rotting our brains? Um you're talking about it as a as a formative experience and not religiously, morally, ethically. So so what I want to ask you just as we get into this is do you, do you know when and how you started thinking about it that way? Um, how how has your um, you know focus on television in that way evolved? Hmm. Well, my primary orientation to media was through news media. Um, I was a reporter, and um, then I was an historian, which um, to me is like being a reporter, except with a lot of dead people. Right. so I was interested in the narrative function of news as um, a, a space which helps us structure and understand the world around us. However, in the last couple of years, it's become obvious that fewer people read the news or fewer people read the news collectively. Uh, in his book, Imagined Communities, Benedict Anderson talks about how the newspaper was really fundamental to the organization of the nation state mm. because it gave people a ritual. Instead of morning prayer, people read the newspaper. Wow. <laughs> and you you knew that everybody around you was reading the newspaper and the same notions of what was going on the, in the world was shaping their understanding of the day. And so through that a collective identity was being created and that's broken down in the last five or ten years for a number of reasons mm-hmm. and um, it occurred to me that people must be getting a sense of of who they were um, what they were about and what was important through other means mm-hmm. And as I began to see my own self hooked on certain television programs, I began thinking, mm-hmm, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe this is a way that we speak to each other across spatial, religious, ethnic, uh, cultural differences to learn more about who we are and what it means to be a person in the world in in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And 2001... The um, 9-11 was such a cataclysmic event. I think people did need new stories to orient themselves and to make sense of 
what was going on and what was expected of them and what was evil and what was good. And newspapers and news magazines did that to a certain extent. But I think that story also needs to go on not just as straight news, but as entertainment, which hits you at a deeper level. Right. And I mean, if you say it that way, even even if newspapers could cover all the dynamics that that unfolded from 9-11 politically, globally, culturally, they, they don't they couldn't really convey the human drama or, or even, I don't know, the sense of fear and uh, a changed w- world. I mean, like, I, I think I had vowed not to talk about 24, but really in, in, the, way, <laughs> in the way 24 did. Right. Pulled us into our sense of being endangered, which is not a way Americans had felt right. for such a long time. And you can understand that intellectually from reading all the articles about mm-hmm. um, political terrorism or um, radical religion. But I think you also need to understand it on a emotional and spiritual level, which mm-hmm. you're right, you can't get in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I do think 24 is a really good example of that because you know whether or not the show works anymore is one question. But at that particular point in time, it really spoke to people's ideas about what is moral, what is immoral, how far do you go to protect yourself, what are you willing to give up, and they they were all questions on people's minds. And you know the New York Times and the L.A. Times, good as they are, were not the places to process that. Mm-hmm. Right, and I, I mean, I would even say, um, because I'm just allowing myself to think about this, um, I mean, t- t- 24 in the beginning especially was just such riveting television, but also <clears throat> I think eventually um, I was so repulsed by how torture became such a routine part of the of the plot. But the truth is that that's, I mean, that's also something that was becoming a more routine part of American policy, right? And I mean, I would say that watching 24 formed my reactions to torture in a way that I haven't actually thought about until now at that very gut level. I, th- I think that's very true. And I think um, the critical, res- critical and popular response to 24 mirrors our social attitudes towards torture, you know, early on sort of an acceptance of any by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. And as the show progressed and as we began seeing some of the fruits of this in our own policies, um, more of a revulsion towards it until you get to the point where people are not watching 24 and are criticizing it in the media because they're afraid it's actually helped to change U.S. policy and mm-hmm. that soldiers in the field are taking it seriously as a combat manual. Right. So the show sort of had interesting repercussions in the real world um, that uh, a lot of human rights activists felt were deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, for some of us, it may have it may have turned us off to torture, but for other people, it may have, you know, looked like a very efficacious m- way of getting what you needed. Right. <clears throat> and um, something else you point out in... Um or, or someone does in your book. I think this is in the introduction you wrote. Um, that in shows like House or ER or Grey's Anatomy, which I'll confess, I'm not. I'm not really a medical show person, but <laughs> but I know this is true that they really take on 
these issues of um, medical ethics and technology, these, but which are also very big human questions. Who should live? Who should die? Who controls the technology that makes either possible? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because David Shore, the creator of House, came to my class, and he basically said, um, well, first of all, he has two older twin brothers who were Orthodox rabbis in Israel. <laughs> so, so religion is not a you know strange subject to him. Mm-hmm. He is not particularly religious, but he said that each show has an ethical problem at its center, mm. and um, he feels strongly that they present ways for the public to think about issues. That's what I mean by the intentionality of the writer. And sometimes I think that we as an audience aren't always as intentional as the writers are about understanding what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so you can watch House and, you know, you're getting the ethical problem on some deep level. But I really think that some of these shows bear talking about and discussing. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of that's done online now, which is also a new development, which is really interesting that perhaps we can talk about. Right. I mean, you you talk about you've written about this show, Saving Grace. Which is that still show still on the air? Or yes, is it? <laughs> See, I never I've never seen that one. I I feel like I also watch much more television than I used to, but there's so, so much of this I haven't seen. I'm surprised you haven't watched Saving Grace, Krista. Well, when's it on? When's it on? It depends on you know my kids' schedules is the issue. Um, I don't know when anything is on anymore because okay. everything is taped. <laughs> okay, see, I'm not that technologically advanced at home, so this is the difference between us. Um, but, I mean, I was just reading, again, in your work about um, the, the responses from listeners to some of the themes of that shows and how it gets into, I don't know, issues of sexual abuse. And you were describing a thread called Salvation and Forgiveness. Um where someone was writing and said, I can and have forgiven myself because I have and can have accepted God's forgiveness. I've forgiven those who've hurt me. That said, I'm not sure what I would do in Grace's position. The desire to pull the trigger would be oh so strong. I mean, that kind of discussion that's starting out of a television program is is pretty amazing. Well, that's why um, in the book I talk about television as... um, Sort of, uh, sort of taking over some of the functions of church. Mm. And I'm not saying that TV is religious or TV is taking the place of church or you know, TV is a new church, but I'm saying in terms of the functions of teaching and community building and identity formation, yes, these go on in church for many people, but other people um, find television programs as a way to accomplish these things. And the fact that you now can go online and form a community with other people who are hmm. deeply concerned with the same questions um, makes the experience more participatory and 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 decentralized. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a whole different way of doing television. And I know you like Lost and Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. and those shows in particular have uh, sparked such creative uh, fan sites, fan fiction, fan videotapes, fans putting in new narratives for characters. I mean, the whole dynamics of 
television watching is is changing because people can become producers as well as right. receivers right. of the content. And so people are participating in the creation of their own meaning systems and their own communities. It's it's sort of mind-blowing. <laughs> it is. Well, and also also the reason having this discussion feels uh important to me is especially if you're not into those shows, if you haven't ever watched them. Um, and you might hear in the abstract about people getting that involved with a television show. It could be another argument for television is rotting our brains, right? They're not having a real life. They're, mm-hmm. they're involved with these fictional characters. But I think what you're saying is that television, this television which in fact, in, in, in for which in fact the, the, uh, the ideas and content are very um, intentionally crafted, um, and the themes are quite large. Mm, this is becoming a place that th- these kinds of discussions and communities are are serving a much more serious function. They're serving a function, in fact, that that in part religious institutions may have served. Exactly. Uh, what I'm saying is that we live in an increasingly media mediated society, and Many of our interactions are structured by the media. And rather than take it all in passively, we need to be um, aware consumers or aware participants of the messages we're getting and ideally shape them and use them for our our own benefit. Mm -hmm. I mean, advertisers have used these media for the last 50 years to sell us things. and. It's time to take the media back and think about what it is we're getting from them and what it is, not in terms of soap and and toys, but what it is in terms of ideas and content that can enrich our lives. Mm-hmm. And being intentional about, intentional about what we're watching um, helps us do that. I'm not saying that TV is going to replace great literature, and I'm not saying TV is going to replace scripture, but it is a site where people are asking very basic questions about the meaning of life mm-hmm. and where they fit in and how to behave as as good people. And the more you think about how these questions are being raised, I think it, it um, informs your life, but it also prevents you from just taking things in and, you know, watching 24 and thinking it's a license to go out and, you know, kneecap right. people. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, I want to talk about this at a, at a few at a, from a few different angles. But if if you if I asked you about um, programs now or in the recent past, I mean, this is also part of the phenomenon now. Things don't necessarily last so long, right? But they do make their mark. Um, well, so, they don't last so long, but they last longer because um, they're online and they're DVDs. Yeah, right. But I think even because they have more substance. I mean, I think something like um, Six Feet Under. Mm-hmm. Having, I mean, I just <clears throat> I feel like that was like a great book I read, right? And it stays with me, di- even though I may never watch it. I, I may never pull out those DVDs and watch it again. Um, s- some of those characters stay with me in a way that more in a way that books have than previous television shows. But so, right. um, but if I ask you, like right now, um, what is on or what has been on in this post nine eleven period? Maybe let's focus on that. That's that that you think of as ex- most explicitly um, having religious themes, um, what you know, what comes to mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, this is a setup. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I was actually giving you a chance to talk about something other than Battlestar Galactica first, if you wanted to. <laughs> um, well, as I look at 9-11, I think that there are a lot of ways to you know, slice and dice the issues that have come out of it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one issue is mortality and what do we do after we die. Right. And I think there's been a number of shows that have dealt with that. You know, A lot of them haven't been on for more than a season or two, but everything from Medium to Ghost Whisperer mm-hmm. to the Vampire shows um, to The Reaper... I think all those shows speak to our fear of death and our hope that something lies beyond. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. Then mm-hmm. I think that um, 9-11 also skewed our ideas of morality and um, what we look for in a hero. And I think shows mm-hmm. like Rescue Me, The Shield, 24, House, all speak to that. Um, the hero is sort of an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. And someone who we can depend upon, but not necessarily like very much. Right. <laughs> and and Dexter is a great example of that too. I mean, you know, are these people good? Are they evil? Are those terms not even mm-hmm. appropriate? Mm-hmm. Then I think there's a show that just sort of say, you know, nothing is what you think it is. And Lost is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to some extent, heroes is a good example of that. You know, ordinary people can all of a sudden become super people. So I think a lot of shows in different ways have uh, addressed different parts of the 9-11 problem. Mm-hmm. I, even even West Wing did that by presenting an alternative universe where we had a president who um, was thoughtful about religion and politics in a very different way than, hmm. you know, the real president was. Hmm. So, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. The Sopranos... Another great example of, you know, what's moral? What is what is it to lead a good life? Um, is caring for your family enough? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I th- and and how do you how do you live? You know, what decisions constitute being part of a community? And Tony was a very good member of some communities, but a wretched member of others. <laughs> So I think all those shows um, dealt with various aspects of 9-11 and the questions that it raised for us. Um, and The Wire, I mean, mm-hmm. that's another great example. The Wire isn't religious or doesn't have religious themes or spiritual themes in the same way that some of these others do. But I think it brought us back to questions of uh, what is our responsibility to our neighbors Mm-hmm. And um, how do we show compassion and concern in a very compromised gray world? I, I haven't I haven't been able to get into the wire, although I've I've tried. But um, I also sense that it it taps into um, a real and and reasonable anxiety that we have about the complexity of our cities, life mm-hmm. in our cities, just mm-hmm. and that that what is happening in Baltimore is also happening in Los Angeles and in Minneapolis. and It deals with, with issues of race and class mm-hmm. in a way that no other show I've ever seen does. Mm-hmm. 
you know, everyone applauded Grey's Anatomy for having, you know, a colorblind cast, and it's true. It's very admirable. But uh, The Wire shows us urban life in ways that no other show ever has ever done before and makes us feel responsible for what's going on. And, you know, again, I think what you said a minute ago about the limits of news. I mean, these are issues that good journalists and good newspapers um, bring to our attention and describe in certain ways. But these, a, a program like The Wire pulls people in emotionally at a different right. level. Right. Um, and I think it would be interesting to talk to David Simon about that because coming from um, a is newspaper he, he background... Is the producer of The yeah. Wire? Mm-hmm. He's a writer and producer, and I think coming from a newspaper background at the Baltimore Sun, um, it'd be interesting to talk to him about the difference in storytelling and, and what he thinks he can accomplish uh, creatively that he couldn't accomplish journalistically. Hmm. Hmm. By the way, before mm-hmm. I forget, when we're talking about 9 and 11 and religion, I mean, you can't overlook Deadwood and John from Cincinnati. I mean, Deadwood is a meditation on on... Um, how we structure our society, um, you know, the idea that all of us are parts of the body of God. Hmm. And here, David Milch looks at an outlaw frontier town where all the characters are basically flawed and despicable, and yet shows us how they come together to form a society. It's a deeply spiritual show that, you know, every third word is, can I curse on this show? <laughs> <laughs> Not too much. Okay, every third word is a profanity. The same um, third word that was the every third word in Six Feet Under, that one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had to get past that, actually, to watch that show. And, you know, John from Cincinnati was his attempt to turn a Zen koan into a television show. I mean, mm. what does it mean when God is in your midst? Well, certainly not great television, but... <laughs> <laughs> So, all right. So, so you know, here's something. Um, well, there's been all this all this press lately for the new survey that told us, at least those of us who've been halfway paying attention, what we already knew that that there's a growing segment of people who don't identify themselves as religious in the same way as people used to identify themselves as religious. But but it's but they're not they're not saying many of them, most of them, that they that they don't have spiritual lives. Or that they're that they're not interested in in religion, or perhaps even um, have religious practices. Something that you know I've been quite aware of in these same post nine eleven years, and I don't know if it has anything to do with nine eleven, but that that spiritual but not religious also doesn't mean what it doesn't mean the same thing as it did say in the eighties or nineties, where there was a I don't know the stereotype was a shallowness, right, a pick and choose mm-hmm. and. I'll take a little bit of a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Judaism and call it my spiritual life. But I, you know, there's there's a real depth to the way people are asking. Or I encounter this these spiritual, moral, ethical questions, either inside religion or outside them. And what you're taught, what you're describing, is 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 that reflected in these television narratives? I think that's a good point. Um, I read one survey that suggested the spiritual but religious um, 
split was sort of a false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. In fact, many religious people are also spiritual, (laughs) and many spiritual people are also religious. Right. Um, But... Nonetheless, I think you're right. The fast, one of the fastest growing segments in in the American scene are people who aren't affiliated and who say that they're none, you know, N-O-N-E. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean that they aren't asking these questions. You know, I don't know how you can be a human being and not ask yourself these questions. How mm-hmm. can you not ask yourself, why am I here? What am I doing? Who's important to me? Why does it matter? What's going to happen to me after I die? These are basic human questions. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, whether you're spiritual or religious or agnostic or atheist, at some level you have to answer them to get out of bed every morning. Mm -hmm. Um, God, money may be your God or sex or drugs, but you still have to, I think, find a way to commit your life to something. And um, some... TV writers, like some novelists and filmmakers, wrestle with these issues and, you know, have come up with narratives to help us think through them. Right. And I mean, so so I don't think of, um, I mean, I know in Lost, for example, there are, there are religious overtones and there are characters who have religious experiences. But to me, what is so spiritually um, engaging about that show is it's this very multi-layered... Um, Examination of precisely, the, I think, what you described, those core spiritual questions, what does it mean to be human? And these people in this extreme situation um, who confront themselves, but with all the... Um, I mean, I'll just say this, you know, because everybody doesn't watch Lost, and I discovered it just recently, but, you know, you, you get to know these characters in the extreme situation, but you also come over time to know a lot about their previous lives. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, and, and eventually you know something about their future <laughs> lives, but... Um, they all are in terribly flawed, as we all are. You, and there's a lot of there, there's, there are themes of brokenness and um, and redemption and um, this this. Uh, I, I always think of the first line of Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, "The Nature and Destiny of Man." Man is his own most vexing problem, right? I mean, you, like when the characters <laughs> on Lost, you see that you see that come to life narratively with each one of them week after week. But you also see this very noble um, human will to to keep learning, and uh, I don't know. I'm kind of going on and on, but to me, that's those are that's absolutely spiritually uh, evocative te- television. Yes, I I agree with you. I think those characters in Lost, like the characters in Battlestar um, are addressing a fundamental question, which is, how do I get home? Right, right. And what is the meaning of home? And what is the meaning of Uh home? And, uh you know, that's a question of the Odyssey. It's a question of the Exodus story. Uh It's a question of the Wizard of Oz. Uh Um, I think it's a question that all of us have. And that's why those characters are so appealing to us because they mirror some of our questions about it. And Lost's characters are so deeply flawed. I mean, it seems like everyone on that island has a big problem. <laughs> right. They, well, they've had some terrible tragedy or they've done something really bad. They've made mm-hmm. huge mistakes, huge moral mm-hmm. moral miscalculations. Right. Um, 
they seem like decent people who have somehow gone amiss, uh-huh. awry, awry. And um, can they get home? Uh-huh. And will they know it when they're home? Um, I find the fact that they've gone back to the island fascinating. I know. <laughs> I, d- I don't understand it, and I'm kind of curious about what's going to happen. But um, that show is interesting religiously because it's such a it's such a bubbly stew of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, is it Christian? Is it you know paganism? Is it Buddhism? Right. Or is it just it, science fiction? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But it hasn't. It has enough hooks that almost anyone can read into it what they want to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of its popularity. I don't think, in some ways, to me, it, it it's not a deep show. I mean, it sounds crazy to talk about television. It's deep or not deep. I don't think it's deep in the same way Six Feet Under or The Sopranos might no. be. Mm-hmm. But um, it's provocative. Mm-hmm. And so so I could imagine, like, if I had never watched Lost, or even if I had not liked it, I could hear us talking here on the radio and think, they are just making this up. <laughs> <laughs> so just, I just want to, I think I found this also in your, um, in your work. This is a, this is one of the show's creators, Damon Lindelhoff, Lindelhoff. Yeah. And he said, this show is about people who are metaphorically lost in their lives who get on an airplane and crash on an island and become physically lost on the planet Earth. And once they are able to metaphorically find themselves again, they will be able to physically find themselves in the world again. (laughs) And we don't imagine our television writers having those kinds of intentions, I don't think. Right. Well, the other thing is not only did they have those intentions, but the fact is, you know, thousands and thousands of fans are online yakking about Mm -hmm. this show. Mm -hmm. So it obviously is not just our, you know, Michigas that, you know, we're creating something out of nothing. A lot of people find themes and ideas in Lost that really get their juices going. Right. And um, as a student of popular culture, that sort of makes me curious. What is it about this show that makes people want to live in this universe? Mm -hmm. Uh, The Lost universe, that is. Right. (laughs) And so... um, you know, coming back to the idea of post nine eleven, so I, also I'll, I'll say this, and I've written this in lots of places too. That I I do love science fiction generally, but I didn't, I wasn't that interested in Battlestar Galactica even after I was hearing about it until um, a Muslim theologian <laughs> said to me, "You have to watch Battlestar Galactica. It's about everything that's happening in the world." It's about Israel, Palestine. It's about the post-9-11 world. And I was completely intrigued. Um, And what did you think when you watched it? Well, I think it is about that. But actually, I mean, there's so much going on there that there's so many layers that are also that big to me. You know, the again, this huge question of what it means to be human um, because of the confrontation with with uh, with the Cylons, with who are creations of humans. Right. It's interesting because that show, um, I, I had the same initial reaction as you did. I love science fiction, but I just didn't want to go there. Right. I mean, the name itself Battle is a problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. right. Come on, don't we want to? We're girls. We watch right. Project Runway. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. My daughter watches Project Runway. <laughs> 
so, and when I first watched it, I wasn't even sure I liked it because it looked so different than anything else I was watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it t- I kind of then forced myself to watch it for a while until I could get into it. And I, I joined it midway season one. And then I had to go back and catch up. But saying, having said that, I agree with you. I think that this show really speaks to this era. And at some point in time, you know, I think these some of these television shows are going to be classics that people return to like they return to good books. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure whether this will hold up as art, but it will definitely hold up as um, a reflection of what people cared about and mm-hmm. what the social narratives were of this post-9-11 period. And the fact that they have turned so much of our anxiety and angst into good drama, I think, is what makes the show so compelling to the folks who watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it is terrorism and torture, uh, whether it's a search for a home or, you know, the question of who is a person, all those issues were embodied in dramatic form. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it, too, today, and I've written a lot about Battlestar, and I've written about the political aspects of it and religion right. and politics, but it occurred to me that I haven't seen much written about love in that show. And <laughs> it's true. And if you look at the whole show, at heart, it's united by the love stories. Mm-hmm. The love stories between the characters where they surmount you know, terrible odds to be together and where being together isn't necessarily um, happily ever after. And yet... Right. It's not It's not too romantic, though. It's much more realistic than Oh, no, it's not romantic. Even when it's... It, not romantic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I it's don't think I'm rom- disagreeing with you, but I think that's what I like about it. It's messy, like real right. love is. But I think it's, in the end, what he's saying is that real love is what holds us together. Um, whether it was a real love that brought Hera into being as our, you know as our foremother or or whether it was, you know, the real love that Kara felt from Lee that enabled her to go on when she felt like giving up um, or whether it was the real love that allowed, you know, Ellen and Ty to come back together at the end. Um, Love is what constitutes society at base. But here's something I think is true of the characters in Battlestar Galactica and in Lost, and maybe in all of these good shows that it was true in Six Feet Under as well. And I, and this this does have a lot to do with the great writing and the the art of it. Um, the characters grow, right? I mean, that right. love. If you think about each one of those love stories, um, the, they they mature, mm-hmm. and. Um, and that's actually something I don't think we know very well how to talk about in many parts of our culture. I mean, love in music is so idealized, right? But somehow these programs, um, there's a gravitas and a realism to the way um, love is portrayed that's really refreshing. I think that's a good point because um, it's not it's not about sex or romance only. Right. It's about 
coming together as people and seeing the wholeness of another. Mm-hmm. Um, that a sort of last one of the last encounters between Caprica and Gaius Baltar, you know, was almost sort of I thouy. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and I don't want to trivialize, trivialize either Boober or that relationship, but what are you thinking she, about? Yeah. Well, when she finally, you know, and she sees a Cylon, and he, well, it's, it's hard to tell these stories, but she <laughs> is this kind of central Cylon figure, and he's this scientist, right? So go on. And they've had a very long and complex <laughs> relationship, and. Um, <sighs> They've gone through all kinds of uh, growing pains together and separately. And you don't think they're ever going to be able to reconcile. And at the Mm -hmm. very end, they kind of look at each other and they realize what holds them together and the deep feelings that they share and the understandings of each other's shortcomings and strengths. Right, right. And it's not like a hot, heavy kiss. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a look of... I get it, I get you, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that speaks to that deeper love that is messy and complicated mm-hmm. and um, mature, and that's usually not what you see on television. Right. And you mentioned Hera, and Hera is this um, child who who is the first and the first child born between a Cylon and a human being. And so something that was so interesting to me and I I did actually have to I just watched the last few episodes um, knowing that I was going to talk to you I think I'd been saving them because I didn't want it to be (laughs) over but uh, and I'm not going to give away anything but but something that was very striking to me again thinking about how these these television dramas do speak to some of the really big issues of our time how I mean really you can you can look at the Cylon human dynamic as um, as a reflection on our relationship with our te- with our technology as it might evolve. Um, you can also look at it, at it as a reflection on race. I think. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about it in terms of the Israelis and Palestinians, as my Muslim friend did. And what was interesting to me is how, um, for much of the show, they don't really the humans don't really know what to do with Hera. I think they're more frightened of her than anything and because she's half Cylon. And near the very end, without there being this, without us seeing some kind of um, decision, they, they, they start to refer to her as half human, right? Mm-hmm. And, right and, that, and that changes absolutely the way they think about her. It's language, but it's also suddenly seeing, seeing something in her that they value as part of them rather than that that in her which is other well I think you hit it um, you know here's a show about two antagonistic races who um, believe that only one can survive and the crux of it is is that they either rise or fall together and they must find a way to live together I hope that's not giving anything away <laughs> but um, that's an important important lesson whether we're looking at racial relations in the net in the US or whether we're looking at Israel Palestine or whether we're looking you know at, at um, Europe or Africa I mean 
that is a question facing us as a civilization. Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to live with our differences? <sighs> right, and so I, you know, I thought I was thinking of um, other conversations. <laughs> I, I hadn't, I haven't really put all this together until I have this conversation with you. But a, a conversation I had um, years ago with an Israeli who said that he felt. Um, it had been so important for the Israelis that, that one thing had changed that made Oslo possible was um, that Israelis had started to become survivors rather than victims. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I think that's just this ongoing struggle on both sides of that conflict. Mm-hmm. And something that really strikes me if I watch about both Battlestar Galactica and Lost is that both you see, peop- you see those characters grow from victims to survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And, I mean, yeah, go on. And, I mean, that's a theme I've heard in conversations I've had with people about conflict all over the world. Um, right. And the interesting thing is, is can we take this in better as entertainment than as news? Um, right. Can we, if we read another article in, you know, Newsweek about Israeli and Palestinian children at a summer camp getting along... You know, is that going to make us believe that change is possible? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you need that and you need shows like Battlestar Galactica and Lost to show you that change is possible. Right. Um, I guess that I think we underestimate the power of entertainment narratives to influence the way we look at the world. And I think storytelling... When it's good storytelling, you know, orients us to possibilities and helps us structure the way we look at things. I mean, you know, just think of how many biblical archetypes we apply to the world um, when we judge things. And I think some of these shows do the same thing. Well, tell me what you mean. What do you? What comes to mind for you when you say that? About biblical archetypes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well... Stories about um, about sacrifice, stories like the Abraham mm-hmm. and Isaac story, mm-hmm. stories about um, redemption, the Jesus story, stories about finding home, the Exodus story. Um, yeah, these are kind of almost the great social organizers for how we see things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Jesus is death and what it means for our lives. You know, even if we're not Christians, we still understand this idea of of um, a messianic hope. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the power of the stories is that it hits a human nerve. You know, Abraham being ready to kill his only son um, right. is sort of a model for how faithful one can be. So these, the power of the narrative is that it, it takes on a life of its own for f- folks. And um, insofar as some of these television shows evoke those narratives, they do the same thing. So And create new ones, and create new ones in the process. Mm-hmm. So we can't know anything right now sitting here, but we can speculate and imagine <laughs> that there's some kind of <laughs> alchemy happening. But, you know, then I'm I'm totally fascinated, and as much as I love the show, a little bit surprised when I read that the characters from Battlestar Galactica were invited to the United Nations. Did you read that? Oh, well, that was a great publicity stunt, don't you think? 
I don't know. I found it a little shocking. So do you think the producers arranged that? Yeah, but I mean, you know, it was like last year or the year before when the oh. characters and writers of 24 <laughs> when, were invited to... It wasn't the White House, but it was some kind of Pentagon briefing yes. or something. Yes, I mean, that seemed equally ridiculous. Right, right. Um, but I think that, again, it's a power... It's a testament to the power of those stories capturing public um, imagination that the UN or Donald Rumsfeld mm-hmm. thinks it's going to somehow, you know, Im- improve his standing or get his message across by barring on their on their narrative power. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it did seem a little bit. <laughs> well, I, but I don't know. Maybe if Ronald D. Moore took over the UN, we'd all be, you know, getting along better. You think? <laughs> well, he he's the producer of Battlestar, right? Yeah. <laughs> what you had? Did you have him uh, teach at your class? Yes. Well, tell he came me to our class. Tell me what. Um, <clears throat> I actually tried to watch that, and I couldn't. I I couldn't make the player work. I, I think I watched it way back when you first had it up. But um, was there anything about that that? surprised you or continue to inform your thinking about that show as being more than just a, just another television show? He, you know, you can see this, I don't know if you downloaded it on YouTube, but it's there, and I oh, think no. I think what he says um, that's helpful is he talks about, you know, his own Catholic upbringing, and although that's not tremendously formative for the show per se, I think that it it um, made him open and receptive to using religion as a driving force through the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... <sighs> what What's stayed with me most was the fact that he cared passionately about what was going on in the world and he was looking for ways to find dramatic Hmm. outlets for it. Hmm. So when Abu Ghraib um, was in the news, he talked about how his writers sat down and discussed how they could somehow echo that in the show. Right. So again, Uh yeah, so that intentionality of looking at the world and then trying to step back from it, presented in a con- unfamiliar context so that way we might think about our situation mm-hmm. in new ways seemed to suffuse his um, idea of what the artist's task was about. And I think that stuck by me. I, I, I thought he had a lot of integrity hmm. about that. I just, I, I, I'm having, I've had, had a conversation <clears throat> I'm having echoes of this conversation I had with Robert Coles years ago about the spiritual lives of children and how one thing he was so aware of, having um, studied the way children approach this part of life in many cultures and from many backgrounds, but that storytelling is just one of these um, absolutely core, predictable... um, it's, It's a crux of religious and spiritual experience and of religious traditions in particular. Right. Um, It's hard to have a religious tradition without a central animating story, Mm -hmm. obviously. And I was uh, talking to a a meeting of um, evangelical media folks recently, and we were discussing the benefits of different 
new technologies to get the word out. And it just struck me when I was discussing that with them was, you know, the Passover Seder and how low-tech that is, and yet how (laughs) formative that has been in Judaism and keeping the Jewish people together. How incredibly enduring also. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, it is a great story. Uh And, you know, yes, you can Twitter it, or you can, you know, Mm. do it in Second Life, and you can, you know, jazz it up, but Mm. you don't need to because the story itself is so good. And what makes that story... Excellent, I think, is because it's understandable. It's on a level where people can relate to the very real difficulties. Like, God wants me to put blood on my house. What's that about? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm really supposed to believe that the angel of death is going to come to Egypt. And then, you know, what does God want me to do? He wants me to, like, cross the Red Sea when their waters are, are looming ahead of me. I mean, it's a very human story. And, you know, when we say it, we say, you know, this did not happen to them. It happened to us. Right, right. So it's it's telling the good story, and then it's making you part of the um, the tale, yeah. which is which is what happens online. People become <laughs> part of the story. And then they tell it forward and... Right. Right, right. Recraft it. It, it. To come back to this, this idea of... Um, how so i think we we have a sense and you certainly um are more steeped in this than i am that that this means something that the that this that these that these stories and this this kind of drama is um making some kind of impression i mean i was very interested but it's hard to it's really hard it's not something we won't be able to see we wouldn't be able to see right now anyway but i i the one thing that did occur to me in this context was um I remember something right as Barack Obama was elected president. Someone wrote an article that said, and maybe it was in Slate, black presidents we have known. Did you see that? <laughs> and it was yeah. it was people like, it was David Palmer from 24, who I would have voted for. <laughs> um, and, and, other, uh, and, it, and the point was made that, that um, alongside, parallel to all of the other ways in which our culture prepared itself to make that leap, um, that this was one ingredient, perhaps. And so, you know, and I, I couldn't, and I think of Laura Roslin, who was the president on Battlestar Galactic, yeah, who I would have voted for. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I wonder if um, if there might be lines to, to trace like that on some of these themes, which would be, actually, if you think about the themes of Battlestar Galactica, you know, very hopeful. Yes, it would be hopeful. And uh, what you're talking about, actually, there is a study at one of the Midwestern universities of gay characters on television. Hmm. And what they found out was that um, shows like Will and Grace really did normalize for many people huh. gay relationships. And so, you know, that the old conservative fear that the media, liberal media is going to ruin society, you know, <laughs> had some credence in okay. that sense. All right, all right. So it, I don't think it's just speculative. I think it's actually true that differences become normalized mm-hmm. through through media, and the um, unthinkable become the unimaginable becomes possible that way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, it's one thing to think about character representations in a black president or a gay best friend. 
it seems harder to leap to um, brotherhood and world peace, mm -hmm. but I don't think you get there unless you begin telling the stories and the stories begin sounding normal. Right. I mean, I, I think you're right. It's nothing that we might see in a day or even our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. But I think the more you tell certain stories, the more possible and plausible they become. And the more you can move towards accomplishing them. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it's like that negative example of 24. And, um, you know, the, the U.S. soldiers who thought it was okay to torture because they right. kept seeing Jack doing it and thinking it was fine. Right, right. There could be the positive, the, <coughs> the, the silver lining to that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this is a related question, actually. Um, I, I wondered how you, what kind of perspective you have from USC, Los Angeles, um, about a generational aspect to this, how new generations may in fact be shaping the kind of television that's being made or taking it in differently and and also just some of the themes I mean it occurs to me um, this theme of otherness of encountering the other of having to share the world with the other whether you want to or not um, you know it's just a it's just a reality in the 21st century mm -hmm. um, and certainly in a place like Los Angeles um, mm -hmm. so I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Well, it's interesting because most of the <clears throat> people I've had into class to talk about the themes, the the storytellers are all people more or less in our generation. You know, they're not 20 or 30 somethings and I think that's partly, you know, the Hollywood how you get up in the ranks, but right. they're people who are old enough to have given some time to think about these issues and um they're surprising to me. A, a lot of Catholics I've encountered either practicing <laughs> huh. or fallen away. But um, for some reason, there's at least the folks I've run into have um, all had a Catholic background. And I guess that's not surprising because it's a very rich tradition with a lot of it's good a very stories. Global tradition too, <clears throat> and very global. And it's a very thoughtful. Tradition. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these storytellers come from that background. Um, my students, <clears throat> I think, take my class because um, they actually feel it's going to be very subversive. They can tell their parents they're taking a <laughs> class on TV and getting credit. Right. <laughs> um, or else they think it must be really easy. But um, I found that, by and large, most of them have never thought about television in this way. It's mind-boggling to them to think of TV as something which isn't a forbidden pleasure. Hmm. But once they begin looking at it um, through this light, all of a sudden it clicks. And whether we talk about you know the ethical conundrums of House or the um, you know portrayals of religious political fundamentalism in Battlestar Galactica, which is always a hard sell in my classes. Um, they they see it once we discuss it. And um, the other part of this that we haven't really talked about, about is how television itself becomes a religious act, a ritual act. You know, a lot of them mm. get together once a week and they watch mm. their favorite shows. And, and there may not be anything else that they get together once a <clears throat> week right. to do. Uh -huh. Right. And then they talk about them. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I'd love to be there for those conversations. And I was always curious about when someone takes my class 
and they get together for the conversation is a discussion at all shaped by what they're doing in class. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. They they look at things a little differently than we may have. Um, some of the uh, uh, ideas about the other are not as fixed and formulated, mm-hmm. and they're more open to difference. Right. And um, they're more willing to... once they're given permission, they're very willing to read spiritual and religious subtexts into the material. Mm-hmm. They don't... I One thing I think about the younger generation is um, they may not have been um, formed by a tradition in the way that their parents were for a number of reasons, and which also means they don't, they don't have the same kind of baggage about going there. Is that... Yes, that's true. They don't. Some of them, you know, the flip side of that is many of them don't have the the intellectual tools to really talk about some of these things right. beca- because they don't come from a tradition and they don't have any sort of rig- rigorous religi- religious or theological understanding. Mm-hmm. The good thing about that, I suppose, is that they're more open. Um, on the other hand, at USC we have, you know, a number... There are quite a few religious students... And um, those ones um, don't have a problem seeing the religious elements that are in shows and can even talk about what they see from their own traditions Mm -hmm. in there that they might not have noticed before. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about something Phyllis Tickle said to me about six or seven years ago. Um, I was talking to her about, we were talking about movies and she was saying, um, and this is something that I also observe, and I think is probably also behind what you said a minute ago about how these students are quite happy to think about spiritual and religious subtext. You know, she said, um, this generation is fascinated with mystery. I mean, as human beings have been, but maybe we lost that a bit for a few generations. And, um, she said, uh, and you know, she felt that the that the internet and that online that this online reality was uh, was actually opening people's imaginations about that and changing it um, from this kind of enlightenment mentality. Um, she said, every time uh, one of these kids logs on, they step through the back of the closet into Narnia, <laughs> and they live with uh, an, uh, uh, ideas of different levels of reality. There's virtual reality and this reality and that they mm-hmm. that they all have some substance and that they, they don't have a cognitive dissonance taking all of that seriously. What, I wonder just how you react to that idea. Oh, I wish I had thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it stayed with me. I can see why. That's really, that's great. That's great. And I think it really does explain why Lost in particular Mm -hmm. is so popular with this generation. Um, I would have never watched Lost. And my stepdaughters who are in their 20s, you know, came over once with the DVD and made me sit down and watch it with them. Mm -hmm. But they, you're right, it's like a whole kind of willing suspension of disbelief that um, they're more accustomed to probably because of the way they consume media. You know, Media is so interesting because your orientation to it 
really shapes the way you see the world around you. Mm. And so, for instance, a lot of people say because of the invention of the printing press, um, you know, Protestantism was able to get a foothold and spread rapidly because people were able to get the books and mm-hmm. read for themselves. And, you know, the idea of individualism came out of that. And you can see that there's another shift in consciousness in the way we understand ourselves going on with the creation of the Internet. And I, and what Phyllis said gets to that, the mm-hmm. fact that it's not linear. It's individualistic in one sense, but you're quickly part of a larger community. Um, it's just a whole way of thinking about things that re-enchant the world. I mean, mm. which is something TV scholars of religion and media or people who study religion and media are thinking a lot about, the fact that um, how do we re-enchant things? Mm. Capitalism and industrial capitalism sort of, you know, bleached out the world, put us all in what, right. you know, Weber calls iron cages, and how do we make things magic again? Mm. And television does some of that. Lost makes it magic. Mm. Um, But so does the Internet in the way it can... We not only can passively watch Lost, but we can make up our own stories about it and share them with each other. Mm. Well, that's great. That's your last word. This was so good. (laughs) Did you have fun? I did. (laughs) Yes, but you know what? We didn't talk about Kara, like... Like, do you think she was a Holy Spirit? No. Well, hang on. You know, the reason, it's just that I think we can't do too much of that. I don't oh, no, we... no, no. No, I'm totally with you on that. But do, but I'm asking you, Do Krista, I think? Do you, do you um, think? <laughs> I don't know. I was so shocked that, at what happened at the end. Um, you mean that she just disappeared? Yeah. Sorry, but, okay, we can't have this conversation even right here because Mitch... My senior producer has not watched the final episodes, and he's actually really upset in there. <laughs> um, yeah, we have, I have a couple of questions. I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening in my headphones. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Good questions. Okay. Twilight Zone, apparently, had its premiere 50 years ago. This Ooh. year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was also... Uh, it, it was also about mystery... But with a with a seriousness about ethical and moral questions, and you know, had that capacity to use narrative to mm-hmm. shock you, to make you think about something to, you, that you didn't even realize you were going towards an ethical question until there you were, and it was turning your thinking inside out. Um, but I mean, you know, so the question is, you know, what happened between? seems like there was Twilight Zone, and, but I can't think of much like that between then and now. I mean, it is more like these programs we've been talking about. Have you ever thought about that? I, you know, everything I would say to you would sound like cultural conspiracy. <laughs> um, it, it, that somehow in those... In, 
Let me think. What was 50 years ago? Two, 40, it's 50, 49. Uh, 59. No, 59. 59. 59. Um, Cold War. But it was also the time, the 60s, especially the early 60s, yeah. were a time when things seemed to be working out. It was still the post-war boom, and um, we were on an upward trajectory. Mm-hmm. So I'd be curious as to how big a following Twilight Zone had. Mm. And it could have been the... I mean, I. it's interesting because I, we could probably remember so many Twilight Zone stories mm-hmm. because they kind of live on in cultural memory. It's true. Um, and they're sort of... Even though we may not have watched them, we still talk about them. Mm-hmm. But... I think that that particular time was not one in which people were necessarily looking for for meaning or for alternatives. I mean, things were going pretty well. Um, right. And so the kind of spiritual and religious alternatives that a show like Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits might have raised... We're sort of at the fringes of society rather than front and center. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think it, you would have to look to the 70s and the 80s to see what sort of cultural narratives were being echoed. And that I say that because the late, the mid to late 70s and early 80s were such an unpleasant, unfortunate time coming out of Vietnam, the Iranian hostage crisis, mm. the oil um embargo and shortage. And I think then you had a lot of programs where people wanted to see the good side of life and right. how things could be better, whether it was Partridge Family or Brady Bunch. Mm, it was mm, about, mm. you know, wholesome values. Hmm. I think it's a different cultural climate after 2001. I, I think it's hard to overestimate what it felt like to be attacked on our own turf mm-hmm. and to be so taken by surprise. I mean, we lost Vietnam, and that was upsetting. Mm-hmm. And our, we had you know terrible unemployment in seven in the seventies, but it wasn't like we were being attacked. Right. So I think the narratives look a little different. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, um, and finally, but also yeah. But I also think you always do have a little a few of those, sh- like the X Files. Yes, with, I um, loved that. Was in, mm-hmm. That was in that was the nineties, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Or Twin when Peaks. When you said the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah, Twin Peaks. And then behind, well, I don't know so much about the X-Files, but certainly behind, um, who did the X-Files? Was that, that wasn't J.J. Abrams, was it? No. No, it was. Chris um, Carter. Chris Carter. Yeah. Um, you do have these visionary artists behind the Twilight Zone. You have a, you have a, a character. Twin Peaks was David Lynch. Right. Um is, is this, I think this is the final question. Um, as the shows we've talked about, a lot of them that have been mentioned have ended or are winding down. Um, is there anything you're looking at that's just starting or that seems to be midway through that that you're watching with interest? I hate to say it, but I was really enjoying Sarah Connor Chronicles which was another story about humans versus machines and mm-hmm. Armageddon and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, can we rely on the technology? But I hear that's going off the air. Um, 
Oh, we didn't talk about Kings, which I was so impressed with the first few episodes. And I actually heard about it on your blog, but I hear that's in trouble, too. Yeah, I I think Kings is over the top. Do you? It's just, oh, it's too... But I love it for that reason. I know. I think it's, it's sort of great kitsch. I'm just kitsch. amazed. I know. <laughs> and I read a story where someone took issue with it because... Um, it wasn't very faithful to the biblical story of David, which I think misses a point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. It's sort of, but it, it brings up those big themes. And it's such a funny mixture of melodrama and... Soap um, opera. Soap opera. I know. That, I, again, I think uh, it's not going to be around too much longer. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm reluctant to say what I like because I feel like, you know, I'm not the average audience and so whatever mm-hmm. I think is good right. <laughs> that's a short well. shelf life <laughs> but I think that's the other reason for um, the paucities of, of shows like The Twilight Zone is the media environment when you had three networks controlling everything you just did not get a lot of variation and you didn't want to go too far off the ranch because you know it wasn't a sure thing you wanted mm-hmm. things that middle America was, were going to like, and more people were going to like Brady Bunch than Twilight Zone. Yeah. So I don't think you had the room to creatively maneuver in the same way you do today. And I think that's why, you know, there is always probably one in a gen- one every five or ten years of these kind of kooky shows. Mm-hmm. But they really came into their own once um, there was a capacity to niche um to to do f- to have a niche audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I I like oh Big Love. I think Big Love is really good. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I re- have you not watched it? I watched it a little bit. Um, I tried to watch it. I don't have HBO anymore, and so I've never. But I've never mm-hmm. checked it out and brought it home like that. Well, it's interesting because here's a show about you know this very religious group, and you would never. I mean. The only way they practice their religion is through their family relationships. Right, right, right. And I I think it's a very interesting take on what it means to be religious. Mm. Um, I love, I like weeds a lot. Mm. It's a a great story about, you know, family and morality and, you know, what you have to do to survive. Mm. And, and, I mean, she was having economic problems before the rest of us, but now she's, you know... going to be an exemplary parent for their (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for doing this and um, I will we will um, who have you been talking to who Colleen okay so Colleen will be your point of contact and she'll she'll let you know when this is going to be on the air and whatever you need to know and if she has any follow up questions and it's great to talk to you. I, I now we have to see each other in person again or something. I know, I know. If you come, if you can get out uh, well, here, that I'll, would be great. Absolutely. I mean, next time I come out there, I'll, I'll see you. I just don't know. Right now, I've got a bunch of, bunch of. I've my life is like planned for the next two years or something, but I'm, I can't complain. <laughs> it's all good. You're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. So are you. <laughs> we should just talk every once in a while. I would love. That's a good idea. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to talk to you while I'm writing my book. I bet you'd be a really helpful person. Maybe I'll email you. Can we set up yeah, time to yeah, talk? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Krista. Bye-bye. Bye.